The Bible reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 21. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that is without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we may also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come to you in love and with a gentle spirit? Uh, just while I get this sorted out, tell the person next to you, if you had th- three wishes from a genie, right? you've just rubbed a lamp, you've got three wishes, what would your three wishes be? Okay, you got your wishes? I will ask you what they are out loud. Here's a, a genie joke for you. Two office workers, they're heading out for lunch, and they do that awkward thing where the boss comes out at the same time, you end up walking along, you know, how was your morning sort of thing. Anyway, they come across this ge- old lamp, and they rub it, sure enough, a genie comes out, and he says, oh, there's three of you. Normally I give you three wishes, but um, you can share in between you, one wish each. So the first worker blurts out, I want to be in the Bahamas, sitting under a palm tree, sipping a cocktail. Poof, they disappear. Second worker says, I want to be at a luxury ski resort, all the best equipment for all the best, all the best slopes. Shazam, they just disappear. And then the genie asks her wish, she says, so what, what do you wish for? He says, she said, I want both of them back in the office by the end of lunchtime. But that genie question, if we think about it seriously, can tell us a lot about what we want. What we think makes us rich, what brings us honor, what makes us reign. So what what would mean running our lives just as we'd like them. Um, I saw something once, and it, it was a really ordinary thing, but it really stuck with me. And asking this question about the genie just reminded me of it. 
I saw um, a bloke in a house near us, and on his drive he had a Porsche Carrera, right? a really nice posh luxury car. And he was lovingly waxing it, you know, really clean. You know, meaning the, the brake calipers are polished and shiny. But that wasn't the unusual thing. The unusual thing was that not only was he polishing his Porsche, he was doing it wearing a kind of a satiny jacket with Porsche written across the back. And he was wearing a hat that said Porsche. Polishing his Porsche in his Porsche hat and his Porsche jacket. And it always makes me feel really sad and melancholy when I think of that. Because right there, visualized in one moment by one man, was summed up what a lot of people's lives are about. Not Porsches, but the fact that we'll settle for something. Well, what we'll settle for. Not Porsches usually, one thing or several things that if we have that, we think, oh, we've arrived. We have what we want. We're rich. We reign. But those things never deliver. The world convinces us to settle for a con. For so much less than God intends for us. And if together this, as a church this morning, we're thinking about if together as a church, as Christians, if we embrace worldly values for our church, worldly ways of working out what success is, well, we're in danger of settling for a con that is so much less than God intends for us. So if you had those three genie wishes for our church, for Trinity Church Woodcroft, what would those wishes be? In today's passage, the Apostle Paul is helping this church planting in Corinth to see that they've conned themselves. They've settled for too, too little. They reckon they're on the top, these Corinthians. They think they're the, the top Christians. They're the top church in the region. They've got the best ministry strategy. They've got Sunday services that would blow your socks off. They're too blessed to be depressed, too anointed to be disappointed. They've got more spiritual gifts than the Christmas section in a Christian bookshop. They reckon they're so wise, so gifted that actually, Paul, you were all right for starters, but you're a bit beneath us now. They've moved on to more powerful, more anointed, more spiritual ministries. So how's the Apostle Paul going to help them? Now, you probably noticed as Adele read the passage that generally this passage is a rebuke. It's a correction. Paul goes in pretty hard. But before we get into it fully, let's look at Paul's heart for them. Verse 14. Verse 14. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. My dear children. So Paul's pretty sharp not to humiliate them but to look after them. It's like a parent yanking a child back before they run into the road. Paul wants to protect them and warn them away from danger. That's the fatherly heart behind his words here. Paul's writing about the experience of the apostles, but notice what he says to the Corinthians, verse 16. I urge you to imitate me, to follow his example. So in working out what faithful gospel ministry looks like, what a genuine uh, faithful Christian life looks like, we can look to the apostles' example. 
We receive the apostles' gospel witness and we copy their response to it as well. So this is a message and an example for all of us. And we're going to look at it in just two sections today, spectacular scumbags and power in weakness. Spectacular scumbags, first of all. Paul's helping them get the right way up their upside down thinking about what it means to be a Christian, what the Christian life is like. So verse 8, just to be clear, Paul's being sarcastic. You know, Now, there's a technical term that the scholars use for what Paul's doing in verse 8. It's taking the mickey. Okay, that's what he's doing. So verse 8, well, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign. And that without us, oh, how I wish we, you really had begun to reign so that we might reign with you. So Paul's saying, oh, aren't you the bee's knees? Of course you don't need me. You've already arrived. Waiting for Jesus to return and reign. Well, you're already reigning. I should just get on board with you. Paul's using their own worldly words of self-satisfied self-assessment to help them see they're being shaped more by their culture than by the cross. They're being shaped more by their culture than by the cross. So what could be going on here is that they've got an, what they call an overrealized eschatology. That's kind of the idea that you see it in prosperity preaching these days. The, the idea that the promises we have for eternity are claimed for today. And there's, like all error, there's an element of truth in it. We saw in verse 321, chapter 3, verse 21, all things are yours. You know, we do have on promise by faith every blessing in the heavenly realms, as Ephesians puts it. But you and I are not in the heavenly realms just yet. We only get to experience fully everything Christ has won for us when he returns. So it is the normal Christian life to have struggles, to struggle with sin and its consequences, to suffer sickness and setback. It's just that we get to go through all of that, knowing that there's a glorious, perfect future for us at the end of it, where it will all make sense and it will all add to our glorifying God. So maybe that was what was going on in their minds, but actually I think more likely they were just being really Corinthian. They were still, they'd never dropped, they'd become Christian, but they'd never dropped that chasing social superiority and all the privileges and power that that brings. So now they were just twisting their Christianity to get where they always wanted to go in the first place. Instead of showing off about belonging to a school of wisdom, they're now showing off about belonging to a particular preacher and their own giftedness. So they were shaping church in the image of their culture. They were Corinthianizing church rather than Christianizing Corinth. And it's good for us to keep an eye out for what the culture we live in is telling us. Because it's always telling us something. None of us live in a vacuum. We're all being offered ideas and values and every day. And how those things shape our thinking and behavior can be really obvious or it can be really subtle. So obvious things. So for example, you've probably noticed 
Lots of young men these days are wearing the most offensive looking mullet they can muster up. Uh, I might have mentioned it before. You see these days people wearing pyjamas to the shops. Now those are obvious cultural changes. But what's lying behind them? Those cultural changes can be really subtle. What's the mess- what message has been taken on board that leads young men to have terrible hairdos? What deeper change in society do those slippers worn in Woolworths point to? It can be mind-boggling to try and keep up with what our, makes our culture tick and work out how it's influencing us. The simplest thing to do is to keep coming back to the message of the cross. The message that Jesus, the king of the universe, didn't cling on to his rights as that, in that position as God the Son, but gave himself up to being rejected by his own people, betrayed by those closest to him, humiliated and killed. All that so we can be forgiven and join him in heaven. We become what we believe, don't we? You know, we put on the jacket and we wear the branded cap of who or what we reckon is important. So the Corinthians were just living out that they believe status and power, reaching human expectations, were most important. Um, Pastor and author Tim Keller put it like this. The real culture war is taking place inside our own disordered hearts racked by inordinate desires for things that control us, that lead us to feel superior and exclude those without them, that fail to satisfy us, even when we get them. But as we keep preaching out to ourselves God's gospel of grace, as we keep preaching the foolish to the world, inconvenient message of Christ crucified, as we sit at the foot of the cross, instead of avoiding it or going around it. That changes us. God is at work in our hearts to make us want more of Jesus, less of the world. And at times that will mean we just bump up against our culture. We're great against our culture, against what most people say is normal. As we stick with Jesus, that helps us to see where what most people say is normal doesn't fit in with following Jesus. And that's the kind of life Paul paints a picture of now in verses 9 to 13, contrasting his experience and the apostles' experience with the smug satisfaction of the Corinthians. So verse 9, the images of the Roman arena. Who's seen Gladiator, movie Gladiator? Most of us. But you get that. that's the kind of scenario we're picturing. picturing. The Romans would parade uh, their prisoners of war, their slaves, people are defeated in a procession, in a long line, chained up spectacle of humiliation. They'd make a spectacle of them to humiliate them. So the apostles are, to the world and to spiritual powers looking on, like the most humiliated slave at the end of the procession. Lion fodder for the arena. Whilst the Corinthians reckon they're more like the ruling elite in the VIP box seats. Verse 10, it's more sarcasm. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, 
But you are so strong. You are honoured. We are dishonoured. See, someone's getting the sums wrong here, aren't they? They are wiser, stronger, and more honoured than the apostles bringing the gospel. Honoured by who, exactly? Verse 11 and 12, by all the worldly ways of measuring these things, the apostles are complete losers. Verse 13, the image uh, moves on, it's from the kitchen. We've become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. So you know when you pull the fridge out or the cooker to sweep uh, all the crusty dry bits from underneath it? You know all the bits, you know what happens to those bits? They get put in packets and put in noodles as the um, flavorings. That's, but that crusty stuff under the fridge, that's, that's the kind of picture here, the scrapings. That's what the apostles look like to the world. They're the forgotten container of moldy food that's become so stinky, you don't even want to open it to empty out and wash it and recycle. You just dump it straight in the bin. That's the kind of picture. For the Corinthians, in leaning into their culture and playing down the gospel of the cross, uh, they've been rejecting this life of costly, self-sacrificial discipleship. They want all the glory and the honor now. But it just doesn't add up. It just doesn't work out that way. Jesus will always grate against the world. Being a Christian will always seem weak, foolish, and shameful to most people. So the answer is not to go along with the world to make it less like that. The answer is not to import the world into the church so we're not quite as offensive. Now, Paul models the right response. Verse 12. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. So when we're rejected like Jesus for following Jesus, we react like Jesus. Enduring, blessing, speaking kindly. Now, if you're not a believer listening to this, or if you were someone checking out church, you might be thinking, why on earth would I sign up for this? And even Christians might be thinking, well, that's not the kind of church experience I'm looking for. But the thing is, this is only half the story, isn't it? Being considered scumbags, garbage, missing out socially and economically, that's how the world will treat us. That's kind of par for the course. But within church, the Bible's got so much to say about the true life and the blessing to be found as being part of church. There's love and grace and one anothering. Relationships that are different to your worldly relationships. All to help us keep going in the face of rejection by the world. To help us bless and endure and speak kindly. But the more we import worldly values and beliefs into church, the less we've got to offer. We're importing a Trojan horse of temporary fixes that distract and lead away from the true life that's only found in Jesus. So we don't look to worldly ways 
to be rich and wise and strong and honorable in God's eyes. Instead, we find power in weakness. That's our second heading, power in weakness. So, so far, Paul's gone in pretty hard, hasn't he? In a culture that really values clever speaking, he needs to go large to get them to listen. So he's gone pretty hard. And it's part of a parent's job. He's he's kind of parenting the Corinthians, isn't he? It's part of a parent's job to keep our children's feet on the ground, to keep us from being too full of ourselves. My dad was good at this, is good at this. I once had a new pair of jeans. thought it was really cool. Utility chic. They had like a strap on the, on the side leg. And my dad kept... To say to Vicky, my dad kept sneaking things in there. So I'd go out with my mates thinking it was really cool. And they're like, why have you got a ladle dangling from your leg? <laughs> Top tip, good one for your dad, so you can have that for free. Well, the Corinthians need bring bringing down a peg or two, not to humiliate them, but because their pride is really dangerous. Their pride is leading them away from Jesus. So Paul is their father in the gospel, the one who brought them the good news in the first place. Paul will do whatever he can do to make sure they don't forget the gospel. So be that verse 17, sending Timothy to keep training, modeling them for them. But, or verse 9, be that coming in person himself. And verse 21, he doesn't want to be a disciplinarian. He doesn't want to throw his apostolic authority away around. But he's prepared to do that if that's what it takes to stop them forgetting the original gospel. Being church together, if we're being real with one another, isn't always going to be easy. There may be times that we have to rebuke or correct one another. But we always want to do that with that same attitude, Paul, that kind of parenting, nurturing, protective heart for one another, wanting to build one another up, not for the sake of putting one another down. Well, if the Corinthians are getting it so wrong, what does it look like to get this right? Verse 16, I urge you to imitate me, For this reason, I've sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faith in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. So follow the example of the apostles. There's a way of living that agrees with the gospel. And it won't lead to looking successful from a worldly point of view. In fact, it will often mean our life is much harder in this world. But true power, true life, is found in the weakness of following the apostle's example. As he follows Jesus' example of enduring suffering for the sake of future glory. Enduring suffering for the sake of future glory. Verse 19. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these, arrog- how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Even if we adjust everything to have the power to win the world's approval, 
It'll only be a temporary approval. So most of you will have seen the sitcom Friends. It's one of the world's most watched television programs. Been in the news lately because one of its stars, Matthew Perry, died. And it's not even that old. But if you watch episodes now, uh, some of the attitudes and behaviors and the language used that were so mainstream, not just approved of, but sought after, popular, you now kind of think, ooh, they won't, they won't, get, they won't get away with that now. You, that would never get made today. Everything shifts. Just as you think you're about to reach the finish line, it gets moved somewhere else. We'll never win the world's approval. God has got lots of good things, good works for us and good things for us to do in this world. Our work, our families, enjoying the good things God provides for us. But we need to keep them in their place. We need to always be asking, what's going to follow us into eternity and what's going to rust and fade or die that man with the Porsche I told you about now it's not morally wrong for him to have that car if he can afford it but he's not going to be able to drive it into heaven is he and his Porsche hat and his Porsche jacket will probably end up laid on top of his coffin in the funeral chapel following Jesus frees us from trying to get that approval rating, from trying to win at life with temporary things. As we suffer for living for Jesus, we make a different kind of spectacle, a different eternal success. The suffering and disadvantage that comes from following Jesus is not losing out in the end because it makes room for God's grace and for God's power to be shown up. All the more. As we forget self and live for Jesus, his promise of future glory shows up for what it is. Much more certain, much more satisfying, much more permanent than winning temporary approval of the world for temporary things. So it's not that, I don't want to paint a picture that if you're only being a faithful Christian if you're having a really hard time. Just expect hard times to come. We don't need to go out and seek persecution. It's okay to be wise as serpents. It's just that those worldly marks of success that the Corinthians cared so much about, they become meaningless in the face of the future glory and the good relationship we have with God through Jesus now. So what would your three genie wishes for our church be? Uh, to finish, here's some more diagnostic questions to help us see if we're being shaped more by our culture than by the cross. So here's a question. How, do you, how does it make you feel being told to imitate Paul? Given what he says about ending up last slave on the row in the arena, are there any modern-day worldliness things that are preventing us from imitating Paul in his life and his teaching? Well, here's another question to help you think about it. Are you proud of our church, of Trinity Church Woolcroft? If you are, why? And should you be? I've been asking myself this question. 
I'm great, not proud, but I'm grateful for us that we do keep on about Jesus and we try and couch everything we do as being in response to God's grace and for God's glory. I'm grateful that we're not all that bothered about being, well, we're not bothered at all about being cool and trendy. You know, our network is openly hated by some for sticking to the Bible. And this passage tells us that that's a good sign. But uh, where I think uh, we should have some concerns, I do think that we, and by we I mean me, and probably you as well, will line right up obediently with Adelaide's culture when it comes to our evangelism. So polite Adelaide culture says, it never says it out loud, polite Adelaide culture never says anything out loud, but uh, there's an understanding that faith and belief are very much in the private you-do-you sphere and not something to bother other people with. So people will, if you talk about Jesus, people will smile and they'll make positive noises, say something about church. They're not going to make a spectacle of us in the arena, but they'll still think we're garbage. They'll still think we're scumbags. They'll just won't say anything. They'll say it with a smile and think it with a smile on their face. And that, that's actually really powerful in keeping us quiet. But the truth is, this is not private stuff. This is the most important news anyone in the world needs to hear, including Adelaide, especially Adelaide. It's good news that calls to the obedience of faith and people need to hear it. And we're doing them a favor by sharing it. So it will always be tempting to keep quiet and play down the message of the cross We'll always be tempting to take on worldly values so that we don't end up the last slave in the arena procession spectacle. But the message of the cross is God's message of grace and salvation. It's the path of suffering that leads to glory. It's the message of power in weakness, glory in humility, honor in dishonor, Forgiveness in guilt, winning when we lose, it's the message of life from death. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray you will help us, um, you'll bring to mind and point out to us where we're being shaped more by the world around us than by the cross. And I pray you'll help us to stand firm. You'll keep bringing us back to your gospel message, the good news of Christ crucified. And that that will shape and form us. That will inform everything we do, how we live, how we speak. And we do pray for opportunities this Christmas to overcome the awkward of Adelaide culture that tells us to keep quiet and share Jesus with boldness and faith, trusting you to do what only you can do and work in people's hearts. Amen.